We are continuing our study of this great epistle, and we are coming to some great texts that are found in the Word of God, and we are looking this morning at Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 20. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 20, and I want to bring to you a message entitled, Beware of the Libertines. Beware of the Libertines. Let's read God's Word together. We'll be reading from Philippians 3, starting in verse 17. Paul writes this, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. If you've been with us in our study of the book of Philippians, you know that we are looking at a chapter that deals with false teaching. False teaching is the subject of Philippians chapter 3. Paul introduced this subject back in verse 2 where he said, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Three times in that verse, Paul called the church to be on guard or to beware, to be on the alert against a potential threat that would undermine the church. And the potential threat he was speaking of was the threat of false teaching. Paul is very clear about the threat that these men face, he calls them dogs, he calls them evildoers, he calls them those who mutilate the flesh. And he says in verse 1 that he is repeating a warning that he has already given the church. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. I've already given you warnings about false teaching. When I was with you, I told you over and over again about the threat the false teachers face to the church. But now I'm writing these things down. And I'm writing them down because it's safe for you. It's safe for you to be continually reminded about how doctrine is so essential to the church. How the word of God is key to to everything we do as a church. And that we need to carefully guard the deposit that's been, of truth that's been entrusted to us. And so he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, we noted a few weeks ago that the particular threat that Paul had in mind in verse 2 was the threat of those known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers were those who were former Jews, and they were professing faith in Christ, but they were adding circumcision as a requirement for salvation. They were basically teaching salvation by faith plus circumcision. In order for a Gentile to become a believer in Christ, he must be circumcised according to the Mosaic law. In essence, they were adding works to the gospel. And in essence, they were nullifying the grace of God. You'll remember in our study of the book of Galatians, it was the Judaizers who had infiltrated the church of Galatia. And Paul says there that they were distorting the gospel of Christ. With this church, the Philippian church, the Judaizers had not yet come in the church, but they were a threat outside the church. And Paul wants them to be on guard against the Judaizers so that they will not come in and undermine the gospel 
in the congregation of the Philippians. And so he says, beware of false teaching. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. Now you remember as we study this chapter that Paul, in order to make his point about the Judaizers, he digresses into a word of personal testimony. And it is this personal testimony that forms the the bulk of verses 4 to 14, the bulk of this chapter. In this testimony, Paul recounts his life as a former Pharisee. He recounts how he sought to earn righteousness through works of the law. In verse 6, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. Paul's point there was that there's two forms of righteousness. There is the righteousness of man and the righteousness of Christ. There's the righteousness that is earned by works and there's the righteousness that is received by grace and these two forms of righteousness are utterly incompatible and cannot be reconciled. They cannot be melded together like the Judaizers were trying to do. There's no hybrid of faith plus works or grace plus human effort. It is all by grace or it is not by grace at all. And he says, I tried to earn my righteousness through works of the law, but when I came to Christ, I saw that all of my works were insufficient to gain a righteousness before God, and I counted all things as loss for the sake of Christ. I saw all my human works as filthy, rubbish, completely worthless before a holy God. And I gave them all up in order that I may receive by grace a righteousness that is not my own, a righteousness that has been achieved by Christ, a righteousness that is given to me as a free gift of God, received by faith through no works of my own. And he goes on to describe this righteousness in verse 9, that I'm found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith In Christ, Paul says, having been justified by grace, having received the righteousness of Christ, imputed to my account by grace alone, I now treasure Christ above all things. Verse 8, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And because I'm treasuring Christ above all things, I am pressing on with intensity to know him more. My whole life's purpose and my whole life's aim can be summed up in this one phrase, that I may know him, verse 10. I just want to know Christ. I just want to know him more. And I haven't attained to the knowledge of Christ that I want to attain to. And so I'm leaving what lies behind and I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. I'm pressing on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. In this word of personal testimony, Paul recounts his conversion. He recounts the glory of his justification. He recounts how he's, he, the purpose of his Christian life, how he's pressing on to know Christ. But all of that has been a di- digression from the main theme in this chapter, which is the theme of false teaching. And so having gone through all that in, in his word of personal testimony, Paul now returns to his main theme in verse 18. And he returns to the subject of false teaching. And he calls the church again to be on guard against false teachers. In verse 18, he says, For many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, Their end is destruction, 
Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. It's clear that Paul is addressing threat of false teaching again. He says in verse 18, I'm addressing those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. These men oppose the cross. They oppose the purpose of the cross, the work of the cross. And there's been some discussion regarding exactly who these men were in verse 18. Some say they're the same false teachers in verse 2. Some say that Paul's addressing again the Judaizers, those who are adding circumcision as a requirement for salvation. Those who are adding works as a requirement for faith, for salvation in Christ. But if we examine the language of verse 18 carefully, we see that the description of these false teachers doesn't fit necessarily the teaching of the Judaizers. It seems best to see this verse addressing not the error of legalism, but addressing the opposite error, the error of license, the error of licentious living, the error that says that because we have received God's grace, God's grace allows us to live in sin and that we can live any way we please because that is the grace of God. Paul describes these false teachers in verse 18, and he says their God is their belly. He says they worship literally their stomach. They are ruled by their bodily appetites. Their whole aim in life is to indulge the flesh and to satisfy their sinful earthly desires. He goes on to say in verse 18 that they glory in their shame. In other words, the sins that they should feel ashamed of, the sins that should prick their conscience are actually the things that they boast in. And the boast may even be that a boast of grace, a faulty view of grace, that look how great grace is, that it allows me to live in sin. We know that shame is the function of a healthy conscience. Shame is registered in our conscience when we sin because that shame is designed to lead us to the cross, to lead us to grace, to lead us to Christ. And yet, there are those with cauterized consciences. There are those with hardened consciences. Their consciences are like scar tissue. They don't register pain because they have so been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And these false teachers, Paul say, that they, they ought to feel ashamed of their sin, and yet they feel boasting in their hearts. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 18 that they have their minds set on earthly things. Their aims and desires are rooted in this world. 1 John chapter 2 says, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If you love the things of the world, then the love of the Father is not in you. But these false teachers were completely consumed with earthly aims, earthly goals, earthly ambitions. They had their minds set on earthly things. And because they worshiped their stomach, because they gloried in their shame, because their minds were completely set on earthly things, Paul says, that they revealed that their profession of faith was not genuine. They were not genuine Christians. They may have professed to know Christ. They may have named the name of Christ. But Paul says in verse 18, their end is destruction, which is a reference to 
hell. You remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 where he said there will be many who come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And he will say, depart from me for I never knew you. There will be many who come who think they are Christians but the reality is that they were never saved. And they reveal the reality of where they are in regards to salvation through the way that they walk in this world. See, brothers and sisters, we are not seeking to say that, that works are a requirement for salvation. That was the error of the legalists. We're not saying that in order to be saved, you have to live a righteous life. What we are saying is that we are saved by faith alone, and yet the nature of faith is that it expresses itself in obedience to the word of God. The reformers put it this way, we are justified by faith alone, and yet the faith that justifies is never alone. Good works are never the root of our salvation, but they are always, always the fruit of our salvation. And we are not saved by our good works. At the same time, we are saved unto good works. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, not a result of works, that no one should boast. And then he immediately adds in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. When the libertine comes and says, I, I believe in Christ, yes, I, I, I have faith in Christ, and yet the profession of his faith does not result in any pursuit of godliness or any pursuit of righteousness. But all it reveals is an unbroken pattern of persistent sin. And there is great reason to question the reality of that salvation. James addressed this in James chapter 2, verse 14. He said, what good is it, brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And the answer is no. James isn't saying you add works to faith. James is saying that the true nature of faith is to produce works. Read Hebrews chapter 11. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And yet, what did all the Old Testament saints do when they professed faith in God? They expressed faith their faith in obedience to God's word. And James says that, James 2 verse 19, you believe that God is one, even the demons believe and shudder. The nature of faith is to produce good works. Faith results in the pursuit of godliness. Faith results in the pursuit of Christ and Christ-likeness. What Paul is saying here in Philippians chapter 3 is you can pervert the gospel of grace through legalism by adding works as requirement for faith or you can pervert the gospel in the opposite way by taking works completely out of the equation, by denying the true nature of faith, by presenting a perverted view of grace which says that grace allows me to continue in sin. And Paul says in this verse that many walk in this way. There are many who walk in a licentious way of living. Brothers and sisters, that, this was true in Paul's day. This is true in our day as well. Churches are filled with men and women who profess to know Christ, and yet by their deeds they deny the profession that they say they hold to. They say that they trust in Christ, and they say they believe in Christ, and yet 
In their lives, there is an unbroken pattern of licentious living, an unbroken pattern of unrepentant sin. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Test yourself. Make sure that your faith is genuine. And whenever I speak on the subject of dead faith versus true faith or real faith versus a mere profession, I'm always concerned because I know that there are some in the church who just simply have a weak faith that they're just struggling, and maybe you come this morning, you're just struggling, you're, you're, you're saying with the man in the Gospels, I believe, but help my unbelief, and you're just doubting, and you're struggling in your faith, and I never want those who are weak in faith to be unnecessarily unsettled by these warnings, to question their salvation when all they need to do is to, to grow and to be strong in faith. You know, there is such a thing as weak faith, and I want to say to you is that weak faith is genuine faith, Paul says in Romans chapter 14, verse 1, accept those who are weak in faith. And I don't want any genuine Christian to be unnecessarily unsettled by these warnings. I want you to know that our Savior is a Savior who does not break off a bruised reed. And he does not snuff out a smoldering wick. His heart is to come to the weak Christian and to minister to that Christian and to allow his faith to grow strong. Yet at the same time, what I also say is that although there are some in the church who are weak in faith and simply need to grow strong, there are others in church who really are dead in faith. They're just not saved. I mean, they know the Christian culture, they know the Christian lingo, they know how to, walk, to talk like a Christian, but there's no reality of, of true spiritual life in their souls. And this is what Paul is referring to here that there are those who claim the name of Christ and yet in the end they worship their appetites. They live for the world. They glory in their shame. In the words of Titus 1.16, they profess to know God but they deny him by their works. And what Paul is saying here is that those who live in this licentious way, who may name the name of Christ and never really experience the reality of repentance or the reality of the pursuit of Christ, who never have a faith that, that expresses itself in works or experience the grace that transforms their lives in sanctified living. And make no mistake about it, these men and women are enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul doesn't say that lightly. If you look at this verse, verse 18, he says, for many of whom I have told you, and I'll tell you even with tears. I mean, he's weeping as he gives this warning. He's weeping over those who will say on the last day that, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And they will hear, depart from me, I, will never, I never knew you. He's, he's weeping over these people, and yet he's saying with firmness in his tone, he's saying these are enemies of the cross of Christ. They oppose the cross. Why? Because Jesus died to save us from our sin. And what that means is that Jesus died to save us not only from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. Jesus died, in other words, that we may live godly and holy lives unto God. In Titus 2.14, Paul says that Jesus gave himself for us on the cross. 
to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are, catch this, zealous for good works. And so because these libertines were living in unrepentant sin, were denying their profession of faith by their works, Paul says they were opposing the gospel message. And so, brothers and sisters, we must be on guard against both ways to pervert the gospel. We must be on guard against the dogs, the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh, and we must be on guard against those who worship their bellies and who glory in their shame. We must be on guard against the error of legalism and we must be on guard against the error of license. We must hold fast to the truth that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of Christ's work alone, and yet we must hold to the true nature of grace, which is to transform lives, and the true nature of faith, which is to express itself in works, and the true design of Christ's work on the cross, which is to save us, not only from sin's penalty, but to save us from sin's power. And in guarding ourselves from these two extremes, we must hold to the true doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The New Testament warns against licentious teachers in many different passages. In Jude verse 4, Jude gives this warning, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who were designated for this condemnation. These are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. They say, why don't we just sin so that grace may increase? I mean, the more we sin, the more grace we get. And so we want more grace, right? So let's just sin more that we may receive grace more. They pervert the grace of God into a life of sensuality. And Jude says that they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And 2 Peter chapter 2 addresses these false teachers as well. Peter says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. We must guard the gospel against the threat of licentiousness, against the threat of the libertines. You might be saying, Dan, how does, how does the church do this? How do I do this as a Christian? How can I guard myself against the influence of the licentious teaching in this world? And in this text, we see Paul give two prescriptions to guard against the influence of licentiousness. And the first prescription is this. He says, I want you to follow godly examples. I want you to follow godly examples. Verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. We've talked about this in the past. The heart of discipleship is spiritual example. How discipleship is teaching and modeling. How it is precept and practice. The heart of discipleship is instruction, 
plus it is lives that live out that instruction. Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, faith, and purity. And to Titus, he said in Titus 2, verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Paul is referring here to one of the concepts that run throughout all the New Testament. He says, brothers, join in following my example. Follow me as I follow Christ. You see my life and my heart. I'm counting all things as loss and in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. I'm taking all of my works righteousness and I'm considering it as trash. I'm leaving what lies behind and I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. I'm not considering in any way that I've arrived spiritually or that I can coast in my relationship with Christ, but I'm pressing on to know Jesus more. And then in verse 17, he says, brothers, join in imitating me. Have this same heart in your life. Look at your own life and say, everything's lost in comparison to knowing Christ. Look at your own life and say, I just wanna know Jesus more. Leave what lies behind. Press forward to what lies ahead. Join in imitating my example. And then in a very humble way, Paul says in verse 17, I also want you to keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. It's very humble because Paul's saying here, I'm not your only example. I'm not your only model. You have many models you have many examples that you can follow that would encourage you in your spiritual walk Paul may have had in mind men like Timothy and Epaphroditus whom he's talked about in chapter 2 how they were models of those who conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel or he may have had in mind the elders and the deacons of the Philippian church whom he has already mentioned in chapter 1 verse 1 He may have had in mind the faithful members of the church at Philippi, but his point is that there are many around you who walk according to the example that you have in us. And what I want you to do, the verb is mark them out. Note them. Take careful note of how they live and imitate them as they imitate Christ. What Paul is saying here is that one of the great ways that we protect ourselves from licentious living is to follow godly examples. That one of the means by which God sanctifies our lives is by surrounding us by spiritual examples. And Paul was not a perfect spiritual example. We know that. He said in Romans chapter 7, I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I want to do. He had to confess his sin. He had to struggle with his flesh. He was not a perfect man, but he was pursuing Christ. And I would say to us that all of our spiritual examples are not perfect. All of them have flaws and failures. I've learned through the years in my own life that God has given to me spiritual examples as a gift. They are a precious gift from God. And none of them are perfect. They all have weaknesses. And yet, I've learned that even from the weakest of Christians, I can learn something. 
almost from any Christian, there's something that God can teach me through their lives and how they're pursuing Christ. There's something that I can be encouraged by that would help me in my own sanctification, but I need to mark them out. I need to note them. I need to take careful care to pay attention to these lessons that God has for me. Some of the examples that God has used in my life have been pastors. Some of them have been missionaries. Some of them have been elders and deacons in the church. But some of my most treasured examples, some of my most encouraging examples have been Christians who have no title at all. They're faithful members of the local church. They serve Christ without fanfare, without any desire for prominence. And I think that's why they're such great examples. Because that's the example of Christ who came to be a servant. There have been times when I've said to my wife, I found a woman who I think would be a great example to you. And I want you this week to make an appointment with her, to buy her lunch and to ask her questions and spend time with her. Just, just try to learn as much as you can from her. And there's been times where my wife has come from those appointments greatly encouraged, built up, in Christ. And many examples that I've been encouraged by have come through the avenue of, of books, of biographies. If you're not yet a fan of Christian biography, I want to try this morning to make you one. Because Christian biography is one of the means by which God ministers to us through spiritual examples. And sometimes they're old guys, you know, they're dead guys like Athanasius, who contended for the truth, and I've read his biography and been greatly encouraged. And sometimes there are contemporary examples like Tim Tebow, and he has a biography out, and I haven't read it yet, but I want to, I made a resolution this week to buy it for my boys because I want them to be encouraged by guys who serve Christ. There's examples everywhere, men who are dead and yet still speak men who are alive and still ministering and still serving the church. John Piper called Christian biography the best form of entertainment, and I agree. You will be encouraged if you surround yourself with spiritual examples, not just living ones, but even dead ones, and allow them to show you a pattern of life that would glorify Christ. Paul is saying, fill your life with godly examples. This, this, the church is a classroom of godly instruction, not just from the pastors, but from other Christians. There are lessons to be learned everywhere if you will open up your heart and simply receive it, if you will be intentional about receiving the encouragement that other Christians have for you. And again, I say that, the, that a, a Christian doesn't need to be a perfect example to be an example. Some of you in this church have been some of my greatest examples as I've watched you live for Christ. And with all of my spiritual heroes, I don't think there's a single person who's invested in my life or that I've looked to as a spiritual model that I would agree 100% with everything that they do. And yet the things that they have taught me that God has used to encourage me have been priceless. Paul says, if you want to guard yourself against licentiousness, 
surround yourself with examples. And if you need a place to start with this, I would just encourage you, start with your care group. Just start there. There are examples there in your care group. In each and every care group in this church, there are examples who will encourage you. But you need to go with that attitude that I, need, I want to be learned and I want to be encouraged. I want to ask questions. I want someone to teach me and to encourage me. You need to go with that attitude to be ministered to so that we would be guarded against licentious living. Paul says, guard yourself against the libertines of the world and you do this by following godly examples. And then he gives a second prescription in verse 20. Not only follow godly examples, but he says secondly, focus on your heavenly hope. Focus on your heavenly hope. It says in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power of that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now for the rest of this message, I get to talk about one of my favorite subjects in all the world, and that is heaven. And I'll try to restrain myself because I would love to have an hour just to talk about the subject. I know we're already halfway through this message. But this is the favorite subject, I believe, of every Christian who understands what God has promised us. We know from scripture that this world is not our home. Heaven is our home. We are just passing through here. We are but aliens and strangers in a foreign land. And Paul makes that statement so clear in verse 20 where he says, our citizenship is in heaven. What he means by that is our heart is in heaven, our home is in heaven, our Savior is in heaven, our passions are in heaven. The songs we sing are heavenly songs. The word we preach is a heavenly word. The Savior we worship is a Savior from heaven. The home we long for is a heavenly home. Our citizenship is not here in this world. And in contrast to the libertines who set their minds on earthly things, our citizenship, Paul says, is in heaven. We do not, we're not consumed with love for this world because we understand this world is not our home. Our passions are not here. Our passions are elsewhere. And I remember visiting Russia a number of years ago. And I was a tourist in Russia. And I had a good time there. I ate the food. I ate the borscht. I wore the big furry hats that they wear in winter. I saw the Kremlin. I realized the whole time when I was there that this land is not where my heart is. I'm just a tourist, an alien, and a stranger. My heart is in America. You don't, you're not going to see me sing the Russian national anthem with passion of a citizen. You're not going to see me cheer the Russian hockey team with all, everything in my heart. That's not where my heart is. My citizenship is elsewhere. And even when I was in Russia, I was longing for my real home, my home in Los Angeles. 
which were my passions and my, my heart was really at. When Paul says our citizenship is in heaven, he is saying that this world is not our home. And I had a conversation with a lady in a coffee shop this week, and she was telling me, if I just had a million dollars, I'd be happy. If I just had more money, I'd be happy. And I told her with all respect, if you had a million dollars, you wouldn't be happy because all of that is going to burn. All of that is just temporary. It's all passing away. If you come to Jesus, he give, he'll give you true treasure. He'll give you treasure that lasts forever. He'll give you an eternity in heaven. How does anything in this world compare to the treasure that Jesus offers in heaven? When Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven, the Philippians would have understood this because the city of Philippi was a Roman colony. It was located in Macedonia, but it was governed by Rome. They had a citizenship that was somewhere else, even as they lived in a land far away. And Paul is making the analogy to the Christian life that we as Christians live here in this world. And yet, we are governed by a commonwealth that is somewhere else. Brothers and sisters, what I would say to you this morning is that if you want to guard yourself against licentiousness, you want to guard yourself against the danger of the libertines, you need to understand that everything in this world is going to burn. You need to take that to heart, that the homes are going to burn, the real estate are going to burn, the merchandise are going to burn, that all the possessions in this world are going to burn. This is a vapor. This is not our home. You need to understand that the real treasures, the true treasures are in heaven, which are imperishable and undefiled and will not pass away, and that we are awaiting the culmination of our salvation, which is when Christ comes to take him to be with himself. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may also be in my Father's house. There are many rooms. And that is where our true home is. And Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. And then in verse 20, he says that from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. How encouraging is that? The word await speaks of eager, anxious anticipation. In fact, in the NASB, it's translated, we eagerly await for Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The word speaks of setting our eyes on a definite hope. It pictures a Christian concentrating his focus on the glory of Christ's return. Paul is saying that this is our hope. This is our confidence, is that Jesus is coming again. Acts 1 verse 11, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And when Jesus comes again, when he returns to this earth, he will not come as a sacrificial lamb. He will come the second time as a triumphant lion 
Matthew 20, verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And Revelation 1, verse 7 says, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, John says, even so. Amen. If you are a true believer in Christ, your heart cries out when you hear of Christ's second coming. Your heart cries out, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This is the thrill of every Christian's heart. This is the hope of every Christian's soul. This is the one event that we look to and that we long to as we live in this sin-cursed world and as we battle with the flesh and with the world and with the devil. We know that Jesus Christ, our Savior, is coming again. And we are those who say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. And we pray that it would be soon. We pray that it would be today that he would come and take us to be with himself and that he would end the rebellion and end the sin and just end the wickedness and establish his rule upon this earth. Because the scriptures say that when our Savior, when he returns this time in power and in glory and in triumphant victory, every tear will be wiped away and all mourning and all crying and all pain will be removed. He will receive us as his believers to be with himself. Our faith will become sight. We will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. First Peter 1 says that though you do not see him, you love him. We love him. Even though we do not see him, what will it be like when we see him face to face? and be given eyes to see his beauty and his glory. Well, this is the heart of every Christian. This is the cry of every true Christian's heart. And from time to time, it needs, it needs to be continually stirred up by way of reminder that we are looking forward to a Savior who will come from heaven and who will establish his rule upon this earth. And in verse 20, Paul says that when Jesus returns... When he comes back in power and in glory, he will do one of the most wonderful and glorious things in our lives at the time of that great event. When Jesus returns, he will give us a new body. A new body. Verse 20. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power of that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You've heard me share this before in the past. I can't wait. I can't wait for my new body. I can't wait for my new resurrected body. I think maybe when I was in my 20s, I thought I was indestructible. But you know, the older you get, you realize the truth of what Paul says in verse 20, that this body that we live in is really, truly a lowly body. It is subject to age. It is subject to illness. It is subject to disease, to weakness, to pain, and to suffering. 
And the hope of the Christian is that one day when Christ returns, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. You say, Dan, what was his glorious body like? Well, look at the post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a real physical body. It could be touched and it could be seen. It had fingers and toes and a face that could be recognized. Jesus walked, he talked, he ate, he moved. He said to Thomas in John chapter 20, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. It was a real physical body yet free from the effects of sin and death. And one day, Paul says, our bodies will be made like his they will be perfectly suited for our new residence in the new heavens and the new earth which are to come. And they will be a perfect dwelling of the Holy Spirit and we will live forever with Jesus in heaven. Last week I told you that the, the day we receive our resurrected bodies will be the day when the church is raptured. The resurrection occurs at the timing of the rapture of the church and there are two groups of believers at the rapture of the church. There are those who are raptured to be with the Lord in the air and there are those who are resurrected to be with the Lord in the air. Those who are alive at the time of the rapture will be caught up to be with Christ in the air. Those who are dead in Christ will arise and be fitted with new resurrected bodies. And together, Paul says, they will all be with the Lord on the day of the rapture. And you can read about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the Christian's hope, is that when Christ returns, we will get a new body and 1 Corinthians 15, 51 describes this event in this way. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And then Paul concludes in one of the most thrilling statements in the New Testament. He says, when the imperishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that was written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I love the words of Johnny Erickson Tata, who, by the way, is one of the spiritual examples that God has encouraged me with through her biographies. Highly recommend meeting her in those pages. And she has been a quadriplegic since 1967. And because of this, she has dwelt much on the hope of the future resurrection. She speaks of the resurrection in this way. She says, I was shriveled bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down will one day have a new body. It will be light, 
bright and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. We shall touch and taste. We shall rule and reign. We shall move and run. We shall laugh and never have reason to cry. In heaven, I will be free to jump, dance, kick, and do aerobics. And although I'm sure Jesus will be delighted to watch me rise on tiptoe, There's something I plan to do that may please him even more. If possible, somewhere, sometime before the party gets going, sometime before the guests are called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrection legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. I will quietly kneel before the feet of Jesus. And I believe we will all kneel with Johnny on that great day with glorified bodies that are fit from heaven as we experience the resurrection from the dead. Is there any wonder that Paul says, as Christians, we're not like the libertines. We don't focus on earthly things because these earthly things are not our home. Our citizenship is in heaven and we await Christ's return. And when that day comes, we will say with Paul, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We will say that it was because of Christ's work on the cross 2,000 years ago when he died for our sins and stood in our place that we have entered into the victory that is ours forever. And so, brothers and sisters, I say to us, let us follow godly examples. Let us focus on our future hope. Let us guard the gospel against the error of legalism. Let us guard the gospel from the error of license. May I say to us this morning, let us not walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, but let us walk as friends of the cross of Christ. Let us walk believing and trusting and glorying in the cross of Christ as we await the coming of our Savior from heaven to earth. Let's pray together and let's close our time and give God thanks for the great things he has done. Our Father, what encouragement it is to see the teaching of your word and the glorious hope that we have of eternity in heaven. Lord, by the power of your spirit, would you give us eyes to see that our affections would be moved away from treasuring things of this life and things that never satisfy and things that are not eternal. But, oh Lord, fix our hope on that glorious day when Christ will return and come to take us to be with himself. Oh Lord, we cry, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We cry that that, would that day be today? Would it be today that we would see him face to face? You know that if we have this hope fixed on ourselves, it will purify us, release our hearts from worldly affections. And Lord Jesus, we long to be with you. Lord, minister to each heart this day. Help us in the time 
that we await Christ's return to surround our lives with godly examples. Thank you for the examples you've given to us in our lives. Help us to make application of the truths that we've learned from your word that Christ may be glorified in our lives. We pray all this in Christ's precious name. Amen.